Welcome to Growth Colony, Australia's B2B podcast. I'm Alex from Xgrowth. Each episode, we bring you B2B founders, CMOs, marketing and sales leaders to find out what makes them successful and what was behind their failures, or as we like to call them, hard-learned lessons. If you enjoy the episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share the pod with a friend you think could get value out of it. And of course, make sure to join the community Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack. That's enough from me though. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm Shane Hilda with Xgrowth. And today I'm talking to Kath Brands, CMO at Flint Fox, about how to craft exciting and fun B2B stories. I'm excited to chat with Kath because of her background in both B2B and B2C, working with eight Fortune 500 companies, running campaigns that have broken Guinness World Records. Have She's worked with some of the giants in our world, like Amazon, Microsoft, and most importantly, being able to translate the excitement of liquor and Coca-Cola storytelling to the Amazon and Microsofts of this world. On that note, let's dive in. Kat, thanks for joining us. No worries. Good to be here. No, great to have you. You know, I think this is such an awesome topic to explore, considering how bland and boring B2B messaging could sometimes be. I want to I want to explore from start from there, right? So what are what are some of the issues that you know, coming from, I mean, the amazing background that you've had, getting exposed to the B2B space, what are some of the issues that you start to see in, in the B2B messaging world? So, like you said, you know, I grew up in this world of consumer marketing, which is highly emotive marketing. It's designed to play on the heartstrings of the end consumer so you can get them to buy your product, right? And be it via, you know, punchy music or celebrities or cute puppies, Good consumer-facing marketing evokes an emotion and it makes people feel something. And when they feel something for a brand, they therefore they do something, they buy that product. When it comes to B2B marketing, on the other hand, it's the complete opposite, right? It's super functional. It's to the point. It's usually very, very complex and really technical. And it has no emotion. It's beige. But, I mean, who made up that rule? You know, the delineation between B2B and B2C marketing to me, it's almost as confusing as the mullet hairstyle because it doesn't have to be as black and white as business in the front and party in the back. It really can be party and do business at the same time. You know, a very wise marketing elf said to me recently, the person who came up with the term B2B needs to be expelled from our marketing fraternity. And I couldn't agree more because at the end of the day, it really isn't about B2B or B2C. It's P2P because there is a person at the end of the receiving end of every piece of communication that goes out. I love that. I love, I love, there's, there's a lot of great stuff there, all right? But let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's break it up, okay? Let's, let's talk, talk about what is your approach? So how, how do you go about when you want to uh, create a brand narrative, when you want to basically tell a story how do you approach it regardless of B2B or B2C? Yeah, so in my days in consumer brand marketing, my storytelling narrative was typically distilled down into problem solution. You know, for example, when I worked on Diet Coke, the reason why people drink Diet Coke is because it gives them that little pick-me-up, right? So the approach to storytelling within Diet Coke is it's about how can you give people that 2 p.m. hit when they're in the lull in the middle of the day and they need to pick me up. So drink Diet Coke, boom, little pick me up, and then you can crack on with the rest of your afternoon. 
obviously, you know, it's Coca-Cola marketing. So you inject into that in an amazing tune and exotic location, in the case of Diet Coke, a hot guy with no top on. And, and my approach to business solution brand marketing is kind of the same, right? But it's it adds on an, an, an extra step, which is problem solution with the added step of the proof point, the result that you drove for that business with your solution. So, for example, did you know that there are over 40 petabytes of data that is generated within the retail industry every single hour, right? So that's the equivalent of 400 million photos being uploaded to Facebook. And imagine if a retailer could harness the power of all that data and reason with it and garnish insights so they could get closer and closer to their customer. You know, that would allow them to build that more personalized relationship with their customer. And we all know that delivering that more personalized relationship creates loyalty and it creates a longer term affiliation and more spend that you can get out of that customer. And then, you know, so that's the problem. So the solution is, you know, as an example, the company that I work at, Flint Fox, our expertise is to help people harness the power of all that data and apply intelligence and streamline pricing systems at the back end so that a customer or retailer can maximize their profit across the end-to-end supply chain making them get closer and closer to that customer. You know, price is the number one driver of conversion. If your pricing is humming and singing and designed for that customer, it's going to get you closer and closer to them. And this is exactly what we did for customer X, you know. Our pricing solution drove a 40% increase in bottom line profitability for them because we moved them away from this error-prone Excel spreadsheet world to a dynamic and intelligent pricing engine. So, yeah, it goes, you know, problem, solution within consumer marketing and B2B marketing, even though I hate that term, let's call it business solution marketing. It's about problem, solution, and back it up with an example of how you how you did that for a customer. I think one of the things that you did over there that was very interesting was how elaborate you were when you were talking about the problem. Like you, you went down to the details and understanding what is happening at the teller end, right? Um, mm-hmm. Where I think a lot of a lot of marketers fail to do, like, fail to understand that, right? Because as as, as you said, in B two B, it's not. It might it might be a little bit hard to relate to. It's easy to relate to Coca Cola, right? It's in our daily life, yeah. Um, and we we know what it is. Whereas a technology that just like you said streamlines data in retail space might not be as easy to relate even for a marketer who works there. So mm-hmm. I, I really I really liked how you distilled the problem and and made it made it crispy, made it very tangible and didn't just say companies are trying to increase their bottom line or you know <laughs> they're trying to save more time or you know what what everybody else says. I think that's that's really interesting. Let's talk about some examples. I know you got some really awesome examples. And you know, you gave one right now, but um, let's let's let's. Is there anything else that comes to mind? Yes, I think you know the other thing that I've sort of learned during my time as a in the sort of B two B marketing space is the approach to storytelling can really be applied across all aspects of marketing, right? So, be it new product development, be it 
company strategy or where you're heading from a business perspective, or it can be as something as, you know, deciding on the technology stack that your organization is going to be using heading forward. And so if you apply the same motion of storytelling to problem and solution, then you can really start to think about other big problems that you can help your organization solve and, you know, marketing playing a pivotal role in this. So, you know, one of the stories I'll give you is uh, an example I'll give you is Westfield. I work for Westfield Shopping Centre. So wind back the clock 10 years and I was working for Westfield and I looked after the marketing for three centres in the south of Sydney. One of them was Westfield Miranda and it was considered the jewel in the crown of the Westfield portfolio. Given its location, it was you know, the largest shopping centre within a 30-kilometre radius, and it had a huge frequency of visitation in the local trade area. And it was an asset for Westfield that yielded massive, massive rental returns for them, right? However, if you think about what was going on in the marketplace, downtown Sydney was really starting to rejuvenate and they had some, they really lifted their shopping game, right? They introduced Zara. They had all these, you know, new, uh, sorry, new shopping centres that they were building. And all of a sudden, online was also becoming a huge trend, right? You know, the walls of getting access to product all over the world or all over the country, those walls were being broken down. And so all of a sudden, the tired decor that we had at Westfield Miranda meant that the frequency of our traffic was really starting to decline and people were going elsewhere for their high-value spends, right? So you're talking when people are spending for fashion or homewares or making those sort of big over $1,000 purchase kind of shopping trips. So Miranda was slated for the next big development for Westfield, right? They were going to invest a lot of money in rejuvenating the shopping centre. So the problem that we identified is, is that the shopping centre as it stood today was not fit for purpose. And the product, as in the experience in the day court, it didn't match the profile of the trade area. Now, the Shire, it's a blue chip area, but it has the highest outright ownership of homes in the greater Sydney region which meant that the shoppers had a huge amount of disposable income, right? They were and still are very passionate about where they live. You know, people are very passionate about the show and, and they should be. I live there. It's an incredible part of the world. But they didn't want to leave when it came to the weekend or after work. And they wanted the best of Sydney in their backyard, which was the opportunity for us. So the solution that we did is we designed a shopping centre that did exactly that. You know, the centre was designed to capture the casual elegance of the trade area. It featured a rooftop dining precinct with ocean views. And we bought in, you know, some of the best of Sydney restaurateurs within Sydney CBD to open up restaurants within, within the shopping centre. And then the centre introduced high fashion brands, you know, both international and Australian designers. And at the same time, we had to ensure that we had those, you know, foundational brands as well so that you could mix, you know, designer meets high street labels. And again, classically meeting the Miranda shopper. They like to wear, you know, sass and bide with a pair of Havianas. Um, and then the centre then was anchored with supermarkets at each end, which meant that you could zip in and out with heaps of parking close to your home as possible. And then to sort of close it all off, where we could peak with online is we could bring in experiences, right? So that was gold-class cinemas. It was a bowling alley. And those kind of experiences is something that online shopping really can't offer you. And it still is one of my all-time favourite shopping destinations, right? You know, when And by applying that kind of storytelling narrative of, you know, problem-solution, we created the shopping centre that was absolutely perfect for this, uh, for the, it created the perfect destination, and then another kind of more techie example I'll give you is... That's still a techie one. Yeah. I mean, you guys will probably heard, you know, IoT, right? And 
When I started at Microsoft, although I was an Amazonian for five years, my technical knowledge of you know, terms like AI, ML, and IoT. You know, it was terrible. I didn't really understand what they what they meant. And I was brought into the organization at Microsoft for as, as an expert within retail and consumer goods to try and demystify technology for business decision makers within these organizations so that they could really understand the benefits that Microsoft technology and things like AI and ML and IoT could deliver for their business. And again, along the same lines, you know, problem solution example, my role was to translate text term, tech terms into everyday language of the industry. And as an example, IoT, the Internet of Things, it has many, many different benefits that it can bring to a, to a company. And if you were a retail CEO or CFO, you know, you'd say IoT is fundamental to the future of your supply chain. And they would nod and go, oh, yeah, cool, great. You know, I'm sure it is. <laughs> and they really would be too polite to say, I don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, we couldn't, you, know, you, you couldn't describe it to them. And so the problem that we, you know, the problem that these guys were facing is if you contextualize IoT is the standard supply chain is getting product you know, getting product from point A to B. And that process of getting products from point A to B is not intelligent. It's not digitized. And goods are put on a ship and you just cross your fingers that they'll get there, right? You don't have any visibility information at your fingertips to see where that shipping container is. Is it stuck in the Suez Canal? And you don't know how long it's going to take until it docks. And your business can't plan, you know, accordingly because, you know, ultimately for a retailer, you want to ensure that no shelf is left unstocked. And if you don't have visibility into your supply chain, then how can you know when the shipment's going to arrive? And the solution here really is with IoT, what you can do is you can place low-cost sensors on shipping boxes, right, of all your products so that you can track every single part of the journey. And then that gives you visibility across your end-to-end supply chain, And over time, you can use other forms of technology like machine learning and you can start to identify patterns, right, and and make changes to streamline your supply chain so that you don't have a situation where you have no stock. And a really great example of this is this is the same technology that Microsoft uses for Xbox, right? And it means that they have highly, highly accurate levels of for demand planning, right? They know exactly where every single product is. And when they're about to launch new devices, they can work with their customers and build trust with their customers because they know exactly when that shipment is going to arrive and they can work with those retailers to ensure that that product is on the shelf, building trust and building credibility with their customers end to end. Boom. Love it. Boom. <laughs> I love it. This is great. Now, you also talked about, you know, before kind of went to Microsoft and beforehand you were in Amazon and uh, and anyone who knows me knows I'm, I'm a little bit of a fanboy of, of Amazon. <laughs> they, they have their, you know, they're out of goods and bads, yeah, yeah. but, uh, but, you know, there's, there's some very interesting things and, and they do a, a lot of, a lot of cool things. Tell us a little bit about your experience at Amazon and what were you, what were you focused on there? Yeah, so five years, I was five years at Amazon, I think. Yeah, and I worked for them both in Luxembourg and in Seattle as well. And, you know, Amazon kind of completely changed me as a marketeer because marketing probably isn't a discipline that Amazon is really good at. They don't really know how to deal with us marketeers that come into an organization like Amazon when it's a tech-first company. But it really taught me to think in a different way. And so one of the big projects I worked on with Amazon is I was on the one of the founding team members of Amazon Go. And 
Amazon Go at this point in time was um, a concept, right? The problem. We, we, we'd identified a problem or Jeff Bezos had identified a problem, which is people hate waiting in lines. And technology should be able to help solve that problem of people hate standing around, especially in the supermarket. And so the solution to that was coming up with a store that had no checkouts. And this was such an incredible, incredible journey to kind of be a part of, right? So we had this incredible tech team. We had this secret lab where we built a prototype of the Amazon Go store as it is today. And we we did all sorts of things, right, to try and figure out how we could get as accurate as possible of a person walking in, scanning in with their phone, picking what they wanted to do and just walking out. And one of the things, you know, the role that marketing played within all of this is, you know, we, we work within coming up with the name of the product and that's a funny story in itself. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we identified as the marketing folk is that the store of, in terms of the technology, that was going to become second nature, right? The idea that you walk in and walk out and grab your goods. It used to be after about five times you would do that and it just became second nature. And before we'd even launched Amazon Go, and I was so used to you know, playing with this technology and it became where I used to you know, get lunch every single day, I would go to the likes of Whole Foods and I'd accidentally walk out without paying because all of a sudden <laughs> I'd been conditioned to shop without a checkout, right? So basically what we established from the marketing team is although, you know, the just walk in, walk out technology is what was going to drive people to the store, the novelty would fall into the background. It would become second nature. So then the experience that we had to build upon that had to be absolutely sound as well. So we had to create a food offering that was so good, it would drive frequency as well. And then, you know, going back to the the naming thing of Amazon Go, you know, we, as as a marketing team, we worked really hard to figure out, you know, what should we call this thing? Should it be called Amazon Market? Should it be called Amazon Food? Should it be called Amazon Supermarkets? And we went to see Bezos and Bezos is like, I just want to call it Go. You walk in, you walk out, and then you go. And he was like, look, you guys can go away. You can do some research to tell me otherwise, um, and I'll listen. So we did. And we came back and we came up with, you know, other concepts. This is what we think of Queen. He goes, no, I just want to call it Go. And he was right, right? Like you walk in, you work out, and you go. And it's that easy. And everything about the product today and the infrastructure and the marketing that goes inside of that store is all designed to be grab and go. There's a reason why he's the richest man in the world, right? He's a I love it. <laughs> love it. What what were, you know, you, you mentioned there were certain things that kind of Amazon change you in terms of how you look at marketing, right? What, you know, and, and I feel like you kind of talked about them in the examples, but what, what, you know, if you wanted to specifically talk about, you know, there were these things that kind of change you, is there anything that you can put your finger on? Yeah. So this was, I'll give you another example of a project I worked on at Amazon. It was called Amazon Campus. And the problem that Amazon Campus was solving is, um, they that they had low uh, Amazon Prime penetration with students, basically anyone between the ages of sort of eighteen to twenty-five. And if you think about it, if you can capture that customer really, really early on when they become independent, you are going to be an inherent part of their life forever because Amazon is so addictive in its nature. But the problem that we faced is 
when a when a student would go off to university, the benefits of Amazon Prime were not recognised because the mail systems inside of a campus on a university campus was really slow. So Amazon Prime is you know order before 10 p.m. the next day, get it delivered by 10 a.m. the next day. Because of the systems and processes in order to get mail from point A to B with inside of a university organisation, meant that the meant that the shopper wasn't getting it to five days later. So what's the point in paying for an Amazon Prime membership? So we built a bunch of like mini stores all across university campuses. And these were lockers, right? So literally it was a shop with a bunch of lockers inside of it. And that's where the students would have their Amazon packages delivered to. And it wasn't just a place in order to get packages delivered. And it was also a place that people could pick up with, so could do their returns as well. Now, you think about that as a concept and, you know, a retailer will listen to that and go, well, how do you make money, right? Like you're going to be having to ship a bucket load of packages through a location like that. And given how small margins are, you're going to have to be doing a lot. And there's a finite audience when it comes to universities, the really interesting thing about the way that these things work is it's a reverse PL. And this is you know kind of the way that you start to think differently is so the way that we made money out of these campuses is a package would be delivered to there. And rather than sending a single package to a house, which costs X amount for delivery, we were sending multiple packages to one location. And so therefore the shipping cost per item would go down. And then if you think about a return, you know, a typical return for Amazon would cost, you know, this is just an example, it's not the right number, $1.20. When you would return it to an Amazon campus, because there was a multiple numbers of returns going back to a single location, the cost of the return was 50 cents. So the reverse PL would play out, right? It's a it's that you are saving money from a shipping and returns perspective. You weren't making money on selling goods and services out of these four walls, these locations. I love that example. I love that because it's almost not marketing anymore, right? No. It's like, it's like, I don't want to say it's common sense, but it is so ingrained in the business structure. Yeah. And it has, you know, you have to understand, you have to understand P&Ls. Um, yeah. You have to understand how the business makes money and how it loses money and, and the intricacies of the business, which in a lot of cases, marketers are not aware of. What is your advice for marketers to get to that point? Like how, because the, you know, even some of the suggestions that you, you're, you're making here, if they're coming from marketing, they're business decisions. They're, you know, they're going to impact their financial impacts and not, not just by, you know, an impact from, from the standpoint of, it would be, I'd really love to know how, what, what would be your advice for marketers to kind of approach marketing this way? Like what, what kind of conversation, how, how do they have to position themselves to have these conversations at a business level? Because it, again, it impacts finances, it impacts the operations, it impacts so many different angles of the business. Yes, I say, you know, the, the trick in modern marketing is getting that balance between art and science right, I think. And organisations who recognise that marketing just isn't a cost centre are actually, you know, we really are a gateway to better understanding your customer, to understand how you can deliver great success, right? And, you know, the art of marketing is what attracts most of us. Most of us are quite creative in nature. But, you know, now marketing is so data rich. You can almost track every single interaction that you have with the customer. 
And this is a science part that, you know, marketing has always been missing. But now we really have to have that data-first approach to marketing, to have a strong seat at the table. And this data-rich approach means that we can prove the ROI of everything that we do. Every dollar spent, we can understand the impact that it had on our business. And we can really help to prove that by having your communication strategy right, by having your digital marketing strategy right, your brand awareness strategy right, it can truly drive business impact and drive ROI for your business. And when you get that balance between that art and science right, it's when marketing can really start to drive transformation within a business. Got it. Got it. I got one one other question that I want to ask you is, was there anything in Amazon that kind of from an infrastructure level, from, from the organization level, that prepared you to be able to make these kind of decisions? Like, were there... Were there trainings that they, you know, they offered that you maybe they were a little bit outside the realm of marketing? Were there, you know, were there's a were there a push for certain type of information that hey, marketers need to understand this? Was there anything like that, or, or not? Not really. It was it was really from the individuals and and the initiatives from from the individuals. Yeah, so Amazon's kind of a really interesting place where you have to be a bit of a self-starter in order to survive mm. there. It's not like you walk in and you get this incredible induction pack and everybody help, holds your hand through a process. Amazon employs some, you know, some of the smartest people I've ever met in my whole life and probably will ever met work at Amazon. And, you know, and what Amazon do do though is they have the leadership principles and the leadership principles is what you live your life by and what you make decisions by. And they are so good. They are really so good. And when you interview for Amazon, you get interviewed on based on the leadership principles, a bunch of questions that align to the leadership principles. So we would go into conversations and, you know, you'd have two different points of view. You'd have a healthy debate about it, but you need to get to an outcome. So somebody would have to disagree and commit, right? And disagreeing and committing would mean that, You might disagree with the recommendation, but you are committed to the decision that the business has made to move forward with that. Another one is, you know, start with the customer and work backwards. We used to write a PRFAQ about a product that we wanted to launch, right? And so what you would then do is you would write the press release of the product that you are proposing that you bring to market and write the headline that would happen in the media when Amazon was to produce this product or bring this product to market. And getting into the foundations and starting off a project of that sort of working backwards framework of, you know, what is the problem, you know, what is the problem you're trying to solve? This is the headline that you'd write behind it when it went to marketplace. And then that was the foundations that would kick off every single product. So the leadership principles you know, it's not something that you sort of live behind in a business every single day. At Amazon, we used to live behind them. They were the checkpoint within everything that we would do. So when it was time to review that PRFAQ, we'd go through the leadership principles and say, is this customer obsessed? Is it, um, you know, are we disagreeing and committing on the right way that we're going to go and, and facilitate this project? And then you would basically, you know, the other thing is, is that at Amazon, it was fast and furious. So you'd you'd work hard and you'd fail fast, but then you just keep optimizing and optimizing and optimizing. And, you know, that's kind of the same at Microsoft as well. And that's what Microsoft means by a growth mindset, right? Is that 
you work fast, you fail fast, but you learn and you keep going and going and going. So, yeah, those, those leadership principles were kind of foundational, that, that growth mindset of fail fast and learn fast were also a core part of what you lived every single day. I love it. I love it. Kath, before we, I have some rapid fire questions I want to ask you, but before yeah. we, we get to that, um, yeah. is there anything that, you know, you, you think is, I didn't ask and, and you think it's valuable for us to still cover on uh, on everything that we've talked about so far? Not that I can think of. Can you think okay. of any other stories? No, that's good. I just wanted to. I just wanted to see if there's anything that, uh, and if there isn't, let's let's talk about some some of those questions. Okay. All right. So I got the first question. I got four questions. First one: What is one resource, book, blog, podcast, video, whatever it is, that fundamentally changed the way you work or live? So mine's a person, and it's Richard Branson, and his approach to life is not why, but why not, and. Taking that optimistic approach to life really opens your minds up to so many possibilities. He, he's my hero. Big heart. <laughs> Love it. Uh, question number two, if you could give only one advice to B2B marketers, what would it yeah. be? You're not selling marketing or selling to a business. Oh, sorry, hang on, let me restart this. Kind of thing. You're not marketing or, let me start again. The one piece of advice that I would give to B2B marketer or salesperson would be, you're not marketing or selling to a business, you're talking to a person. So create content that you would want to read and create and deliver presentations that you would actually enjoy sitting through. Just because the business is telling you to do it doesn't necessarily mean you can suck the, doesn't mean you have to suck the life out of it. You know, create content, be content that you would personally want to read and be part of. Question number three, and you kind of answer this a little bit, but who are some of the influencers that you follow in the marketing space? Yeah, so I'd say that as a marketeer, my obsession is consumer behavior, right? And I love watching the way that people interact and play with brands. And so one of the biggest influences for me is actually the interaction of physical retail, right? And if I wasn't in marketing, I would be a professional shopper. And if shopping was an Olympic sport, I would be a multi-multi-gold medalist. Um, And I really love that art and science of retail. And I get lots of inspiration from seeing how retail brands create connected brand experiences, right? From that physical shopping experience through the online experience, through social, through influences, through the advertising they do, I get so much sort of inspiration and influence from seeing how retail brands interact and play with customers. Got it. Got it. Last question. What is something that excites you about B2B today? What excites me is that I reckon, and I don't really like rules, but I reckon that the rule book is wide open to be rewritten. And, you know, we should embrace the mindset of why not and start treating our audience like humans and not bubbleheads. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Kath, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for, for jumping on. I think uh, a lot of people who, who listen to this are going to get a lot out of it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I learned a lot. I, I love the stories. Their stories were amazing. Um, so, uh, so thanks for jumping on. Uh, it was a pleasure. And, you know, I'm one of those geeks who could talk about marketing all day long. So call me anytime anyone wants to talk <laughs> about marketing. <laughs> Awesome. No, I really appreciate it again. Thanks for your time and uh, speak soon. No worries. Thanks, mate. Talk soon. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving us that five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and sharing the pod with a friend. 
If you'd like to continue the conversation, please make sure to join the community Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack. growthcolony.org forward slash Slack. Thanks again for all the support. We're looking forward to seeing you again in the next one.